Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Mount and I'm a dual degree master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. I'm in the studio today with Tom Kazaya. Tom is author of the best-selling book Pilgrim's Wilderness, which was ranked number five on Amazon's top 10 books of 2013 list. His first book, The Wake of the Unseen Object, was named one of the best all-time non-fiction books about Alaska by the State Historical Society. A graduate of Hampshire College, he was reporter for the Anchorage Daily News for more than 25 years and a Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University. He lives in Homer, Alaska. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So for the benefit of listeners who have not yet had a chance to read your latest book, Pilgrim's Wilderness, could you briefly explain what it's about? Pilgrim's Wilderness is the story of a family that, it's a true story, and I came upon it as a reporter for the Anchorage Daily News, true story of a family with 15 children living deep in the Alaska wilderness inside the biggest national park in the country. And it's the story of their challenge of the National Park Service, which divided the old copper mining ghost town out there. Uh, it was kind of a back-to-the-land um, town settlement, and, and the people there were trying to figure out how one lives inside a protected national park in the modern age, um, but with their their kind of wilderness lifestyles. And so they split over whether this, over the challenge that this family had presented to the government. Um, that's how I came to the story as a reporter. Um, it just seemed to define a lot of the uh, modern um, challenges in front of uh, the conservation movement in Alaska. Um, and uh, the deeper, though, that I got into it, the family's backstory and their internal story kind of took over my imagination and the imagination of the readers and ultimately the the second half of the book you kind of are drawn inside the the family and you realize that the father was a, a even though the on the outside they looked like the perfect pious pioneer family and that was the way the father presented them he was really a maniac at raising a cult uh, in in the secrecy of the deep wilderness. And um, to the dismay of his allies in the property rights movement, he uh, the, the family finally exploded. I mean, the, the oldest kids were in their late 20s um, before they were able to rebel. He had such a, a psychological grip on them based on the fact that they had no outside connections and were raised in fear of God and the Bible as he interpreted it to them, and that was their only information about the world. So it became a kind of a fascinating psychological study inside, you know, wrapped, wrapped by the, the fascinating modern environmental war that was going on in Alaska. 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many um, fascinating avenues we could explore in this book from, uh, you know, it, it weaves together so many themes, including, you know, fundamentalist Christianity, quite harrowing stories of, of domestic abuse um, and the role of government in, in society. But given the theme of this podcast series, um, uh, I want to focus mainly on the book's geography and the environmental dimensions of the story you've told. Um, so firstly, it, w- it was the special characteristics of national parks in Alaska, in a way, that made this story possible with, with their provisions for, for inholders. Could you, could you talk a bit about that? Sure. <clears throat> Part of the um, compromise that was necessary in 1980 to pass the landmark Alaska, <clears throat> Alaska Lands Bill was to make provisions for rural residents in Alaska to continue leading the the wilderness lives that they were leading. A lot of that came out of the effort within the Alaska Native community to preserve access to hunting and fishing opportunities for for their own subsistence. That was seen as really integral to their culture. Congress, however, was wary of creating any new Indian country um, authority or, or, you know, passing Indian law on this at this time. And so rather than provide these um, hunting and fishing rights to Alaska Natives, they extended it to all rural residents. Um, And uh, that, as a side point, has become one of the great battles in Alaska to this day because the state constitution would not recognize um, any subsistence uh, provision based on place of residence. All state residents were supposed to be treated equally on the resources, and so you have this outright clash over hunting and fishing between the state and federal law and a kind of patchwork jurisdiction, and nobody's happy, and and it, it continually... Uh, you know, an, an issue. It wasn't really the the issue in my in this particular story, however. But in the process of providing for subsistence opportunities for rural residents, they also um, guaranteed rural residents certain um, protections that you would not find in a national park in in the lower forty eight states. This new there was like fifty five million acres of new national parks and I mean it sort of doubled the size of the park system and more than a hundred million acres of new conservation units that were passed in nineteen eighty by Congress. And in order to to get all that through, they agreed to um, protect the rural landholders who were inside these parks, um, that they would not do what had often happened in other parks with it come in and enforce eminent domain and take the private land away. Um, and there is even a guarantee of access to reach these distant inholdings inside the parks. What the actual access consisted of, it didn't give them a right to build a you know four lane highway through the park to their inholding, but they did have some rights and um, and it's really taken this first generation to work out the question of, well, what does that consist of? And so really it was adopted in 1980 to take care of the, the people living in remote cabins at that time. 
the Pilgrim family, the family that I wrote about, the father called himself Papa Pilgrim, the Pilgrim family came in in 2002 from New Mexico, and they bought an old copper mine deep inside Wrangell-St. Elias National Park, which is the biggest national park in the country. It's a park the size of Switzerland and has only one little ghost town in the middle of it that you can reach over a long gravel road, and that's that's kind of the focus of, of any visitor activity these days. Um, they bought this copper mine another 13 miles beyond the town of McCarthy, and Papa Pilgrim got on a bulldozer within a year, or even within months, I guess, and and plowed open a road down the valley to to town so he could get supplies in and out um, to the park service. This was bulldozing a road through a national park and was an outrageous activity um, to some of Papa Pilgrim's supporters in the community. He was maintaining an old wagon road that once, you know, a century before had had gone up to this copper mine, and he was just kind of reopening the road. Um, and both sides had an argument, and the question was really, the, the legal question, which went through the Ninth Circuit um, and, and bounced away from the Supreme Court, but was resolved by the Ninth Circuit eventually after many years, was what kind of, what was it okay to do that, or did he need to go through the Park Service and, and get their permission first? And so that was sort of, the, became the legal argument, and it was all about access um, rights that were provided under the law known as ANILCA, the 1980 expansion of the parks. And in the book, you raise at one point the question of whether an area could still count as wilderness if it's owned and managed by the government. And there's also the issue, as you say, of uh, whether an area can be wilderness if the Pilgrim family is living there and bulldozing a road through it. Um, has writing this book challenged or changed your own ideas about wilderness at all? Well, I think, you know, it's deepened. It's, it's complicated it, for sure. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I got into the story, fell into the story, was we had a cabin, a family cabin of our own out in that area. We had a little bit of a inholding ourselves. and But we had, you know, kept the trees all up around the cabin and it tried to be very respectful of the wilderness aspects uh, of the area, which not every inholder shared the same aesthetic. Um, but... Some of the old timers who I got to know in the town of McCarthy, who had been there through the '70s and through the debate about whether whether the town would be better off inside a national park or not, um, were concerned because you know in the old days you could go out. This was just empty land with old ruins from the copper mining boom of a century ago, and um, you could go out and if you wanted to live in a cabin for the winter you could go try and fix it up and survive. And, and and once it becomes a national park, it doesn't have that that kind of expansive freedom. But, of course, it also doesn't allow a, a copper mining company to come in and do a modern claim and start fighting about a new open pit mine. So um, so you you give up something and you, you gain something. Um, but it wasn't clear-cut that that the one was better than the other. And then you also have the bureaucracy of the National Park Service, which um, some of the local folks resented more than others. But 
you know, it's a big government organization and and they come in and there are a lot of rules about where you can fly within this wild country now and yet they have helicopters that they can fly wherever they choose and and also there suddenly there are radio repeaters put up on mountain ridges to um, you know enable them to do the patrolling that they need to do of this land but to the people who were there back in the 60s and 70s it's not as wild as it once was out there because it's somehow being domesticated by these uh, uniformed rangers uh, um, and that's making it sound like a little bit more of a of a big operation it's kind of a shoestring operation for the park service out there too in fact um, but I think what I feel like personally how I um, changed in doing this was to have a more appreciation of how lucky I have been to be in Alaska in this generation and to have seen at least glimpsed the old world that goes back to territorial days and beyond and to sort of live into the new world and to be a reporter writing about that transition that to me is is the big story of of my life and my career as a journalist in Alaska. And I can imagine some readers reaching the end of your book and kind of rolling their eyes and saying, only in Alaska. Um, you know, and the book is very evocative of place, both in terms of landscapes and the communities. And what role do you think that place plays in this story? Like, could you imagine a, a similar tale, a similar pilgrim-type tale happening somewhere else? Well, it's funny, you know, even this week, there's this story going on out in Nevada of the you know the rancher out there who's who's refusing to um, to bow to uh, the government's insistence that he actually pay for grazing his cattle on federal land. Um, it's very reminiscent in some ways of the uh, of the Pilgrim story from a decade ago, um, except that you have the addition of Fox News this time. Make me ponder what would have happened if Fox had gotten into the into the Pilgrim's story. Um, so it, there's, it's certainly a Western story in that way. Um, but Papa Pil- one of the things that made Pilgrim such a great character to write about and such an awful person to be associated with um, or to be a child of was his, his shape-shifting ability, his ability to read whoever was talking to him and present himself so effectively. He was very charismatic and, and really brilliant in, in that way. And he understood the nostalgia in Alaska for what had gone before. And he played to that um, very effectively and I think um, was able to sort of maintain his facade as long as he was because of the his ability to rally political forces to his side. They were actually having an airlift for a while. People were coming and flying supplies up to his old, to the rough airstrip up at the copper mine to beat the Park Service's blockade, and um, it, it became a kind of a cause celeb for a while. And um, all of that was definitely playing to the sense of place in Alaska, the sense of, of this historical transition 
and and the the public memory shaping the public memory of what had gone before um, and so yeah in that sense I think it was specific mm. uh, to Alaska and and you mentioned the airlift I mean there's this interesting I don't know if it's a, a, a tension or a contradiction or not but um on the one hand, the Pilgrim family is projecting an image of self-reliance, of living off the land and this rugged frontier lifestyle. But at the same time, they depended on welfare payments, the Alaska um, dividends from the state's oil fund. And as you mentioned, this community airlift that was arranged one winter. Um, do, do you see that as a contradiction at the heart of the family's way of life? And I mean, how, how maybe would Papa Pilgrim have explained it? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think his rock bottom argument would have been that the Lord provides for his own and that they were the, the chosen ones. Um, I think that was the way he described it to his kids. It turned out once I got to know the kids after that the whole thing had blown up and I heard the story of what it had been like inside that he justified I mean, they, they became known and and rejected in the community over the years that they were there, um, even by their former friends, because of so many reports of thieving and and taking advantage of economic situations. And and you know, they they were turned out they were not very good neighbors because they were following his edicts, which was basically that they were the one pure family. Um, and they deserved anything they could get. Um, some somebody out in, in the the town of McCarthy said that uh, the uh, the stencil NPS on any piece of equipment stood for not pilgrim stuff. And if it wasn't the park services, they were going to pick it up and walk off with it. So, um, so I think that would have been the ultimate answer to the contradiction. Presented to the public, he would have. Um, I think he would have been. He was in in kind of some difficulty when he had to to do that. But he was, you know, at one point they actually became somewhat darlings of the state Republican Party. They appeared at the at the state convention as they were a very musical family. I didn't mention that, and that was part of their presentation that playing their old timey instruments, their gospel on stage and that re- and they're all really good looking and it made a very appealing um, picture. Um, but even within the Republican world, there were some who were ready to embrace them as a kind of iconic brand for Alaska conservatism. But there were others in within the Republican Party who who felt who sensed the creepiness of the father's control over the family, but also were turned off by their kind of welfare um, grasping. And and there's always been a concern that the permanent fund dividend program was going to draw the wrong sort, quote, uh, people to Alaska. You know, the, the great moment in the Simpsons movie when the family shows up at the at the border and are handed thousand dollar checks which is not the way the program works but um you know everybody knows about it and then when you have 15 kids um that um dividend program can be a pretty pretty good source of income so you know to be fair there were a lot of um of conservative republicans who were not 
excited by this um, this version of the of the past that had showed up in the in present day Alaska. To go back to that contradiction again, do you think there's a similar contradiction in the state of Alaska itself? I mean, Alaskans play a, place a high value on independence and individualism, yet at the same time, the state and its citizens are heavily dependent on revenues from from one industry, from the from the oil industry up on Prudhoe Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that that's. Um, maybe a, a cultural blind spot that makes it made it a little easier for him to to uh, move forward without uh, being completely challenged on that. I think that 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 contradiction has been, you know, true for years. It's not only the the um, I think he, this the contradiction is even greater when you look at how much Alaska receives from the federal government. In terms of expenses and um, you know per capita um, expenses, it's been phenomenal through the years, and it was especially phenomenal during the uh, the leadership reign of Senator Ted Stevens, who was you know described as a kind of cargo cult figure in his ability to to bring um, riches out of the sky to Alaska, and so um, all of that. Um, you know the economy depending on so much on that federal spending, whether it's in the military bases that were kept maintained up there, or uh, all the other you know huge highway spending and all. Um, that that was in, sort of in contradiction to the we're ornery independent libertarians up here, and we don't really want the government telling us what to do. Um, so. That's, I think, been kind of the, the fundamental psychosis in Alaska. The one on oil is a little, little bit different, um, and we're seeing that played out this year with the, the fight over oil taxes. It's, it's uh, very much in the political arena now in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And th- this book weaves together a, a lot of different stories. You've got the recent story of the Pilgrim family in Alaska, but you've also got their earlier time in New Mexico, the father's background in Texas, as well as the story of the Kennecott copper industry, the surrounding landscape and aspects of the history of conservation in Alaska. And reading the book, it it seems effortless the way you, you weave all these different dimensions together, but I imagine it must have been difficult to select the different aspects of the story that you eventually ended up telling. How did you do that? I took a lot of stuff out. I my my first draft of this book was about fifty percent longer, and I had to go through and and rake out all sorts of things that I thought were fascinating, great great side stories, and really, I I, I was kind of it was a rare rare gift to a writer to have a story, and I, I say that advisedly because it's a on one level a very horrifying story, but to have a story of a family that carries all these big themes about Alaska and wilderness and running out of the end of the continent um, on on the family's shoulders. And I had to learn to trust that and not have a whole chapter about the debates in the frontier town of McCarthy back in the 70s about whether they should become a park or not. I mean that was it's it's a great separate story, but it was really a matter of of taking a lot of that a lot of that out um, after I 
first wrote it, um, I, I had a, my, my agent in New York said uh, that, gave me some great advice, said when, when the reader gets done with this part, with this book, they, you want them to say, oh, this was, I didn't know that about Alaska's Parks. That's interesting. I'd like to know more instead of feeling like they've just learned everything that they could possibly want to know about about parks. And I think I, I noticed just this week, um, John Stewart was talking about the um, the Nevada situation, and um, he did a little, you know, comedic pirouette from cowboy hats to Harry Potter hats. And then he said, as an aside, that was, by the way, um, the uh, the worst ever Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Intricacies of Land Use. <laughs> and um, made me, you know, I kind of flinched because that was definitely what I was struggling with was to have a great story um, that could also talk about the intricacies of land use and not not turn off three quarters of the of the reader. So I tried to to weave it together and it took, you know, probably a year longer than it should have to write this book to to make it work that way. Well, it definitely was a great story and a, and a very gripping and interesting story at least from my perspective <clears throat> excuse me but so how how was the book received in McCarthy itself or in Alaska uh, more broadly you know did did having that audience present as you were writing it affect your writing process at all and the way you decided to frame the story hmm um well it's been very popular in Alaska the book as a whole um and I went to McCarthy Kennecott. McCarthy was the the town, but Kennecott was the mine. This was the origins of the Kennecott Copper Company. And I went to the old uh, um, public house in, in Kennecott and did a community reading out there the month after the book came out, and I was really nervous. And there are a few people who are sore about the book out there, but they didn't come, and almost everyone else seemed to really like the book. And it was interesting because that that um, session, you know, I made my presentation, and then it turned into this big cathartic town meeting about how did we let this happen in our midst, and what did we not notice about the pilgrims? And it was people standing up and talking to one another um, in the meeting, and I just kind of faded back into the woodwork. Um, and um, so I, I was pretty happy with how it was received out there, um, you know, and I still have a cabin out there, so um, I was hoping that I, I would be able to show my face around around town, and for the most part, I think I, I can. I'm going back out this summer to teach at a writing workshop at the end of July out there that they run in McCarthy every year, and um, we'll see if the writing workshop gets picketed, but I think not. Okay, and, and finally, you write about how the residents of McCarthy, a lot of them want to maintain the town's special remoteness and, and quietness and wildness, I suppose, and th through ensuring that it remains difficult to access. And that's there's this issue about a bridge that you that you mentioned several times in the book. Do you think that that writing your book will make that more difficult um, through attracting more people to the area? It might. I was always aware of that little irony there, but um, maybe it will attract the right kind of people or with the right attitude or at least with the, 
the question framed um, so that when they get there, I mean, I think it's going to grow out there for sure, and I don't think anybody can stop that, but you can frame how the growth takes place, especially through the kind of access that's available. Um, you know, the, they used to, the only way into town used to be on a, a tram car across this raging glacial river, and for years the town wanted to keep it that way. They said it was the perfect self-administering interview. You know, if you were willing to get in this tram and pull yourself over these rolling boulders in the glacial river, then you were the you were an okay tourist and you were welcome to come. And now there's a footbridge and there's, you know, another way to get in and it's um it's it's evolving, but I think there's still a, a sense that um that rather than throw this open to a paved highway and tour buses and uh, you know, big princess lodge hotels and all that they want to keep it small scale and um, and you know not have the magic evaporate because of that. And uh, it's it in a way it's another metaphor of of Alaska and the environment is is that bringing this self conscious choice to our lives and our developments and 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 the way we go forward that we don't just consign our future to the you know commercial forces that have their own own imperatives you know we want to um, make some choices we the people who live in the place about how how the future is going to to unfold and the fact that they have the national park service somewhat sometimes on their side sometimes in opposition um, makes uh, makes for a lively mix out there, and I think it's going to be interesting to see whether they can really do what the idealistic interpretation of Anilka would have um, predicted, which was that national parks tell a lot of stories, and they're not all just stories about nature and wilderness, that they are also stories about the past and about also living adjacent to wilderness or in in you know support of wilderness and so can you have a community a wilderness community like this that bends itself around the wilderness rather than the other way around which has been the norm in in westward expansion was to bend the wilderness around the the new communities so it's a kind of a great experiment and makes a certainly makes it an interesting place to write about well, you've certainly given us a, a lot to think about and you know, congratulations on writing such a fine book. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.